You're listening to audio from Hardin Baptist Church. For more audio content or other information about our church, please visit hardenbaptist.org. If you have your Bibles, go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. That's where we're going to be at this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I want you to think just for a moment as you're turning there, the last time you were afraid. Think about the last time fear filled your mind. Maybe it was a big fear, maybe it was a small fear. Maybe you're like walking through the woods after dark and everything's like woolly and creepy. Maybe you forgot to do something you're supposed to at work and you get there and you have that panic attack or maybe homework you're supposed to turn in that you don't. Maybe you were uh, somewhere high up and you look down, there's that fear of like, what if I fall? When's the last time you were afraid? I'll give you an example. Just yesterday, I had a little bit of fear. So I take my family to the Murray State basketball game. And one of the reasons we made sure we went because we heard a rumor John Moran was gonna be there. So we get the poster, we go there, and we're all looking for him, trying to figure this out. But if I'm honest, the real reason I went is because somebody else was gonna be at the game. And I found out this through a friend that Michael Kidd Gilchrist was gonna be at the Murray State basketball game. And so for me, like Michael K. Gilchrist, he was on the championship team of Kentucky in 2012. And me and dad just happened to be at that game. I have the championship ticket hanging up in my office, just in case you don't believe me, I can prove that I was there. And all of a sudden I realized that Michael K. Gilchrist is gonna be there and I've got the championship ticket. He was on the championship team. So I drive to my office on a Saturday. I grab my ticket and I put it in my pocket and I take it to the game because I know if he's there, like I'm gonna try to get his autograph. So I go in, we sit down. Crowder also knows he's gonna be there. He's got like a stack of basketball cards because he wants to get MKG's autograph too. And so we're texting each other. Is he here yet? Is he here yet? No, he's still eating. Because I've got a friend who's with him. So I've got a friend who knows when he's gonna be there. And then all of a sudden I get a text from my son. He's here. I'm like, oh, okay, where's he at? And I, here's my seats, and I'm looking down several sections over, courtside, Michael Kidd Gilchrist is sitting there right beside one of my buddies, MKG. I'm like, this, this is crazy. So I'm texting my buddy, should I come now or should I wait? And he's like, he's probably gonna leave soon, so you might as well go. And I'm like, okay. So game is happening, Murray State's playing. I get up and I have my ticket and I walk across and I start going down the row of chairs and I'm walking. Everybody's sitting there, everybody's watching the game. And here's this guy like walking down the courtside holding the ticket. And when I get about halfway there, all of a sudden, I'm a little afraid. Like all of a sudden I get that like beating heart. Like, you know, I'm kind of like nervous. Like my, like my palms are sweaty. Like I've got this ticket and I'm like, what am I going to say to MKG when I get there? Like, like he's watching the game. Like, how do I do this? What do I say? How do I get the ticket? What if he says no? What if like a security guard out of nowhere just like pounces me and then everybody sees it? What if he says no and everybody sees it? And then I'm like the guy who walks up the stairs like and got rejected. Like there's all these fears going in my mind. Like what is gonna happen? And so I go down and I tap my friend and I say, hey, should I do it now? And he's like, I guess. And so I move over and I tap MKG on the shoulder. I watched this guy win the national championship in 2012. I was there, saw the confetti. Like I watched the game and now I'm tapping it on his shoulder and he turns around. It's like, <laughs> like, what do you say? You know, it's like this moment like, uh, this is, uh, I, I, uh, uh, you know, I'm just like, I'm trying to get like my, my thoughts down. And I say, will you sign 
my championship ticket. And he looks down, you kind of tell he's like, oh, wow, you got a championship ticket. This is cool. And he's like, of course. So he signs it. My son jumps around. I also got some cards. Will you sign these? He's like, okay. So he signs a stack of basketball cards for my son. And we're like the only two there. They're like, even know he's really there. And so here we are. Nicest guy. Like everything goes great. We turn around and I'm walking up those stairs like, look at this. Look what I got. You know, I'm taking a picture and I'm sending to everybody I know, like, just check out this. MKG just signed my championship ticket. And so it all went great. But I just want you to know that when I was in the presence of MKG, there was a little fear. There was a little of like, wow. There's a little awe and reverence. It's kind of the same thing like as you're watching the Murray State game, you're like, is that Jaw? Look, he's there. He cheered. He ate popcorn. Look, that's Jaw. You know, it's like, this awe and reverence of like, whoa. And this morning as I was trying to finish up the sermon, it dawned on me, how, how much more should we as people be in awe and reverence towards our creator God? Like we all have those moments where we get in somebody's presence and we're kind of in awe and reverence. I did that with MKG and even Jaw, but how much more? I mean, MKG can play basketball better than me. I mean, it's not proven. We haven't played one-on-one, but I'm just gonna give them the doubt that maybe he can beat me. But that's all he's got. Like, he can play basketball better than me. He's taller. He's a human being just like I am. And I was in reverence just being in his presence. How much more the God who made the world, the God who made you, the God who made me, how much more should we be in reverence and awe and worship of him? See, what we're going to find today is really the whole of man, like all of you, everything of you, all that you were created to be, is to be in fear and obedience to God. It's that idea of fear, not like I'm afraid of God, so I'm going to run away from him, but I'm in awe and reverence and worship of who he is and what he's done, that I just want to live under his good word and authority. So we're going to kind of sum up like the whole book of Ecclesiastes and One big sum, fear God and obey his commandments. Like that's what life is. And we could sort of rethink about that as man, worship God and live under his word. Like that's what that means to fear God and obey his commandments, to worship God and live under his word. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Ecclesiastes and we're gonna look in chapter 12. Yes, we are at the end of Ecclesiastes. And here we see in verse 13. And if you'd stand out of reverence for the word of God, We're going to read our key text together. Verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Father God, I pray that you would help us to see just that, that the whole of us, everything we are, is meant to worship and live under you. We pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. You guys may be seated. So what we find in the portion of scripture that we're at, the sermon actually ended last week and now we're on the epilogue. So we're going to get kind of some postscript and we're not sure if this is the preacher that's giving postscript on his sermon or if it's an editor that's reminding us of the importance of the sermon. I'm going to go with, I think it's the preacher, I think it's Solomon, giving us some commentary on his sermon just in case we missed his point. Because sometimes preachers can babble a lot And you walk out and you're like, what was that about? He's like, okay, let's just, in case you missed it, here's what I'm trying to get across. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is like the whole enchilada. This is everything. This is what you were made to do, worship and live under God. That's what I've been trying to get you to see. So I want you to notice the bookends of Ecclesiastes. 
So the book ends, what we find in verses one and two is the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That was how the book started. And then he spent 12 chapters telling us how everything is vanity, right? He tried like wisdom and wealth and women and just all these things. Like he chased everything imaginable and nothing worked out. Like it, it all led to, well, meaningless and vanity because the problem is no matter what you chase, you'll die and it's game over and you can't carry anything with you. And then the end of the sermon, the very last line in the sermon is this in verse eight of chapter 12, vanity of vanity says the preacher, all is vanity. So I just gave a really long sermon and I just wanna tell you everything is meaningless. Like everything is meaningless. And so what we find in that is what we'll say is kind of the meaning of Ecclesiastes. The first part is nothing matters under the sun. When you think about Ecclesiastes, and in six months from now, what was that book about? Here's what it's about. Nothing matters under the sun. Everything is meaningless. Under the sun is life apart from God. If you just take it out of the equation and you just live your life and pursue your pleasures, guess what? You're gonna die and it's game over. So nothing in a sense matters. Your family, um, your house, nothing matters because you die and it's all over. That was that message that Solomon brought. Everything is vanity. Nothing matters under the sun. But now we're going to get the epilogue where he's going to say, fear God and keep his commandments. And we're going to tie it together. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see a fuller statement that nothing matters under the sun, but there's going to be a but here, but in the sun, everything does. So that's that whole picture of Ecclesiastes all put together. And we're gonna see that in the epilogue this morning, that nothing matters under the sun, but in the sun that's in King Jesus, everything does. Everything matters. Your life matters, your marriage matters, your kids matter, your, your career matters, your profession matters, your money matters, your retirement matters. Every single thing matters because right now counts for forever. If we live life in relation with God, everything matters. So in one sense, Ecclesiastes, nothing matters. But oh yeah, we live in relationship with God. And if you're in relationship with God, everything actually matters. So let's walk through this epilogue and we see how everything does matter because we do have a relationship with God. So if you start with verse nine, we're gonna get this epilogue. We're gonna see what, the writer is saying about the sermon that has just been preached. And what we're gonna see first is the preacher's work. Here's what the preacher did in preaching this sermon. Notice with me, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So we first see the preacher's task. Here's what the preacher did in bringing this sermon. The first thing he did, he's got access to these proverbs. He's got access to these sayings. He's got access to wisdom. And we're gonna see that wisdom is actually from God. So he's got access to the word of God, which we're gonna see in the second point. He's got access to the wisdom of God. And what he's first gonna do, he's gonna weigh it. And so he's trying to take the word of God and give it to the people of God. So He's weighing and others trying to see, okay, what do, what do my people need to hear? What did the audience that I'm serving, what do they need to hear from these words from God? So he's, he's weighing them, he's thinking through them. 
And I'll just go to peel the curtain back a little bit because you might be wondering, well, how does Harden like weigh what words we hear? How does Harden pick, like maybe you're new and you're like, why did you pick Ecclesiastes chapter 12? Well, the reason we picked is because it comes after Ecclesiastes chapter 11. That's how we got here. And so what we think is when it comes to weighing the words, trying to figure out like what you need to hear, here's our conviction. We're not smart enough to know what you need to hear. There's a lot of you and every one of you probably had a different week and you're gonna have a different week and you have different circumstances, different stages of life. Some of you are middle schoolers, some of you are seniors. We have no idea what you need to hear, but we know you need to hear God's word. So what we like to do is try to just give you the whole counsel of God's word. That's why if you're a guest and you come back, we're gonna start First Peter next week and we're just gonna preach the entire book verse by verse. Because we believe instead of us trying to figure out what you need to hear, we're gonna give you God's word. We're just gonna read through it and present how God has arranged his word to you. So that's why we're at Ecclesiastes chapter 12. So this preacher, he's, he's weighing words. He's trying to find what words to say to his audience, but he doesn't just weigh them. He also studies them. This is like good for sermon prep. This is the preacher's work. So when the preacher finds a word, then the task is to study that word. And just again, peeling the curtain, this is what we do. We, we pick a text that God has given us And then our first job is to study that text. Because here's what we want for you. We don't want you to hear a verse of scripture and then us give you what we think that verse says. In other words, we don't come to a text already knowing what I'm gonna say and then I get a verse so that I can say what I wanna say. What we do is we take a verse of scripture and we find out what did God say. That's through studying, through finding out, through context and and, and grammar. What did God actually say in this text? And then, as the preacher, we give that to you. So it's not what we think or we believe, it's what has God said. So there's a studying that takes place of these words that the preacher is going to give to the people. But not only that, then there is an arranging So he weighs them, he studies them, and he arranges them. So this is the work of, okay, we've got a text. We know what God has said in this text, but now we have to point the text to a people. There's actually an audience. There's actually people are gonna gather in here, and it needs to make sense. There needs to be some arrangement. There needs to be sort of an outline and an introduction, and you kind of need some illustrations to help it all make sense. It needs to be arranged in order so that you as the listener can hear from God and you can actually take it home with you. So the writer, the preacher is saying, hey, I arranged it in a way. Now we can argue whether he did a good job or not because we've went to Ecclesiastes and he would probably fail most preaching classes because he chased a lot of rabbits. Like he did not stay on task. Like he had a lot of points and went a lot of different ways, right? But he's not writing to our Western mind where we like, okay, point one, point two, point three, now do a poem and let's all go home. He, he is writing to people that are not thinking the same way we are thinking. So he is arranging it to the mind of his listener that would be more circular, that is hearing and hearing wisdom and knows how to listen to wisdom. So it might not be the arrangement that we would have picked, but it's arrangement that his people needed. Amen. So what we're trying to do in sermons is to... We're trying to weigh a text, we're trying to study a text, and we're trying to arrange in a way that you can actually like hear it and soak into it. But notice he's not only just teaching these words with great care, 
But in verse 10, it says, the preacher sought to find words of delight and and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So we have, he's actually seeking for words of delight. So, So what does this mean? He doesn't just want to give you truth. He wants truth to sing. He wants the truth that you hear to be pleasant. He wants you to be able to grab it and and pay attention to it and not fall asleep during it. Like he's trying to find words that are gonna hit you and they're gonna be nice to listen to. You're gonna enjoy it. You're gonna enjoy the sermon. It's not just gonna be dry truth. It's gonna be vibrant. It's gonna be have metaphors and similes and all the things of our language he's using to grip you with the truth. It's words of pleasure, words of delight. But we can take that into an extreme and we can just try to do sermons that tickle ears. And that the New Testament would forbid that. Like don't use flattery, don't use poetic language just to tickle ears. In other words, you don't use words of pleasure just to tell you what you wanna hear. And he balances that. He says, I'm giving you words of delight, but also uprightly he wrote the words of truth. So they're not words to tickle your ears, they are true words. They are good words. They're words that you need to hear, but he's trying to give it in a way not to tickle your ears, but that your ears will want to listen, that your ears will want to hear, that your ears would remember. In other words, he wants the word to make an impact in your life. So he's weighing it, he's studying, he's arranging it, he's using words to delight, he's using words to say upright things so that you can hear the words. Because what we see is, it's not just the preacher's work, we have the word's work. And I love what he says next about the word's work. And this is one thing that, as a preacher, I can take a lot of confidence in. Because I don't have a lot to offer you. I don't have wisdom, I don't have knowledge, I don't have a lot to offer you, but what I have is the word. And when I give you the word, it's the word that actually does the work. Like God's word does God's work. And this is exactly what the preacher says. Notice in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. So that little third point, they're given by one shepherd. We're gonna talk about that in a moment, but just know that he's saying that these words, they're not just my words, they're given by one shepherd and that one shepherd is, is God. So it's actually God's word that I'm giving to you, and it is God's word that does God's work. And notice how he says this about the work that God's word does. Notice, first of all, the words of the wise, they are like goads. Now, maybe you know what a goad is. Maybe you're like, I think I know what a goad is, but I'm not really sure. So what exactly is a goad? Let's talk about that for a second. So a goad would have been a long stick with spikes on the end of it, like nails. And the point of a goad is to use mainly on an ox. So you have an ox that is a big animal and an ox is supposed to do work for you, supposed to plow for you, but the ox doesn't really want to plow, it just wants to stay still. So if you're a guy and you have an ox, you want to plow a field, and the ox doesn't want to plow the field, what do you do? Well, you take your goad. It comes in handy. Because if you pat an ox on the behind, it's not going to do much. It's like, really? That was it? But if you have a goad with nails on the end of it, and you just kind of push a little bit, it's like, ooh, I felt that. How about we not do that again? 
And if it doesn't move, then you kind of push it a little bit more. You are goading the ox. Well, that, that hurt a little bit more. And then if it doesn't, you can press a little bit. And then you can hit a little bit. And eventually, the ox is going to go. Why? Because that's what a goad does. It hurts and it moves. It pushes. So you have this imagery of the word of God being like a goad, being like a stick with nails on it. What is, what is the preacher trying to say in this epilogue? That he's saying the word of God It is the thing that prods you. It is the thing that pushes you. It is the thing that pulls you. It takes you from where you are in your selfishness and in your sin and how you want to live your life, and it prods you. It pushes you to where God wants you to be. And see, the thing about a goat is it hurts in order to help. That's the point of a goat. It hurts. It's out. That doesn't feel good. That doesn't sound good. It's hurting in order to heal. And that's what the word of God does. Like when you read scripture, it will tell you things about yourself that you don't want to believe. I'm not really that bad. I don't really. And then it's a goat. It's it's pushing you. It's, It's hurting you. And it's leading you to repentance. Because yes, you are that bad and you need Jesus that much. Like it is a goad, it is. But also when you are complacent and you're just in your own ways and you're doing your own thing, the word of God comes at us and Well, it nudges us, but it also pries us. It prods at us. It pushes us along. It often hurts us in order to help us because God doesn't want you to stay where you are. He wants you to get where he wants you to be. And it's through the word of God, often the wounding of the word. You're gonna read stuff that you don't like. Let's just be honest. You're going to read the Bible and you're not going to like everything about it. The ox doesn't like the goad in its rear, but it's for its good. It's for its help. It's to move it in the way it's supposed to go. We often don't like what God's word says, but it pushes us in the places we need to be. It is like a goad. But notice it's not only like a goad, he also says, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. So you have a goad that's, that's prodding you, that's pushing you, and then you have this idea of nails that are firmly fixing you. In other words, the word does two things. It pushes you and it keeps you at the same time. Amen. So the word, it, it pushes you and it roots you all at the same time. So it's pushing you and pulling you on where you need to go and what you need to get away from. But then the word of God, the truth that comes to us, when we understand the truth of God, it becomes like nails that we can hang our life on. And some of you have experienced this. Some of you have walked through some things and the promises of God have become nails to your life where you hang your very life on the truth of God. All things work together for good to those who love God. Some of you have been through massive suffering and you have walked through some of the darkest things that we could imagine. You have suffered and in suffering, you have heard that promise and read that promise and clung to that promise. And on the other side of it, yeah, not all things are good, but God is working all things for good because you love him and you can see his promise, you can see his working and in the other side of suffering, you can still say God is good and he's doing good things. That has became a nail for you. So no matter what you go through, no matter what suffering comes your way, you have a nail 
that you have hung your life on. That's what the word of God does. The promises of God, they become, they're goads. They hurt to heal. They push us where we need to be. They, they bring repentance and faith in our lives. But also the word of God becomes promises that we nail our lives to, that we bank our lives on, like a tent with, with pegs rooted down that when the wind comes, we hold steady because of the word of God. So the word of God both pushes and keeps us where we need to be. So it's the word of God that does the work of God. And we notice that these words, they're from one shepherd. So these words, they're fixedly firm, but they are given from one shepherd. And your ESV actually capitalizes shepherd to sort of show their hand saying, we think this is God. And every commentator I read also believed that this shepherd, it's a reference to God. So what's the preacher saying? I'm giving you words. I'm arranging them, weighing them, studying them. They're like goads. They're like nails. They are my words. It's my sermon, but also it is the very words of God. I'm preaching, but it's God who's speaking. And it's God through his word that's doing the work of God. So think about that, that one shepherd. How does that relate to God? Well, in Ezekiel, we find that same statement of one shepherd. And here's what God says. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So we see this one shepherd is linked to David in this prophecy. But if you notice that the prophets often use David to talk about the Messiah, the, the king, the one who sits on the throne. So David would also be code word for Messiah. In other words, the Christ. So who's that one shepherd? He is the Christ. The, the, he's David or a son of David. Well, who is the son of David who actually is the one shepherd who lives forever? Well, if you go to John chapter 10, Jesus says, hey guys, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Like that Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, that's Jesus. He is the shepherd. He is the one shepherd. And what Solomon is saying in his sermon is, hey, I've ended it. And what actually happens, these are my words, but they're actually God's words. It's from one shepherd that is prodding you and keeping you through his good word. And we find this, this is what the doctrine of inspiration teaches us. Men speak, but they speak from God. Think about uh, 2 Peter 1, 21. It says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Notice that there's two things happening. Number one, men spoke. So Solomon is saying, I'm a preacher. I've weighed, I've arranged, I've thought, I've put it together. I, I'm speaking. These are my words, but because we have them in scripture, what we know is that what we find in scripture, the reason it's God's word is because men spoke, but they spoke what? From God. Well, how does that work? It's through the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is carrying, superimposing this process so that everything Solomon said and arranged and wrote and weighed, it is the very word of God. That's why Solomon could say, hey, this sermon, it was actually given by one shepherd. And it's not me, the son of David. It's the greater son of David. 
that Messiah who is King Jesus. So we find that the word of God, the reason it does the work of God is because it's God's word. Yes, men spoke. When you read your Bible, you're reading Paul, you're reading Peter, you're reading John, they're writing. They're writing what what they are writing, but it's actually from God because they're being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So men wrote from God. So when you look at your Bible, this is God's word from one shepherd. What should I do? I need to obey. That's what I do. But also we need to know that we have a warning when it comes to words. Notice this warning, verse 12. My son, uh, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and of much study is a weariness of flesh. This is a verse that I would take to God a lot during seminary, and I would just say, hey, Lord, I think you're leading me just to quit and stop reading books, because this is like all I'm doing right now. I'm weary. Why am I reading so many books? And some of you feel that. You're in education right now, and you're like, yeah, it's weary. But that's not, it's not exactly what he's saying, like, hey, don't study. What he's saying is be careful when you go beyond the Word of God. Because like if you go into Books A Million, I don't know go there much because I don't even run around anymore, but when you used to go into Books A Million, you'd look around and you're like, there's a lot of books. Yeah, they're endless and you can read them all. All of man's wisdom, you can read it all today and in a hundred years, it's all gonna change. So A, you can't read it all. B, it's all gonna change by the time you read it all. So just be careful when you go to man's words over God's words. So, so be careful, be warm, because what we have from God's word, it's from one shepherd and it is the word that is going to do the work in you. So yes, read, yes, study, but give more time and attention to the word of God because those are the words of life. Those are the words that are both gonna root you and pull and prod you in the places God wants you to be. So we have a warning for words and then we're gonna get to the end. The end in summary, the whole enchilada, the whole business, everything your life was made for, everything your life should be about. Here's what we see in verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. So we're at the end, it's all over. The sermon's been preached. Now let's make sure we got the main point. So it's, it's the end. So what should we do? Fear God and keep his commandments. That's, that's what we should do. That's how we should live. Fear God and keep his commandments. And then he says this, look at it, the, is the whole duty of man. Now, in the actual original language in the Hebrew, the word duty is not there. It actually just says, this is the whole of man. And I think it's getting a little deeper and a little more rooted in what the writer's actually trying to say. It's not just your whole duty, it's all that you are. It's all that you were created to be. This is your very existence to fear and obey God. This is what you were made for and meant for. And if you don't live in accordance to this, you're going to miss life. This is everything. This is, this is all of it. So what does it mean to... Fear God. And we got to sort of figure that out. Like, what does it mean to fear God? I'm reminded in Luke chapter 8. Remember that story when there's a big storm and they wake Jesus up because they're all about to die and Jesus goes out and he calms the storm. And you know what it says about the disciples? They were all afraid and they marveled. They were afraid and they marveled. I think we get a good picture of what does it look like to fear God. 
in that moment and they say this, who is this that even the winds obey him? Like there's a sense of like, I mean, I was, I tapped MKG on the shoulder and it was like, oh, how much more the God who can stop the storms? Like that's all in reverence. This was the disciples. There is a fear of like, who are you? But we're marveling over you at the same time. It's like, we're not sure. Like, I, I like, what do I do here? All I can do is just marvel and to worship you. That's what fear does. Fear is worship. We worship the Lord. It's our fear. It's not a fear where we are frightened, where we like run away. Like that was Israel at the bottom of the mountain. They're all frightened of God. Moses up on the top being like, God, you're big and you, and you could kill me, but will you show me more? Like that was a proper fear. Yes, I know that you could destroy me, but somehow I realized that you actually love me and I just wanna be as near to you as I possibly can. See, that's fear that leads you to God, not that leads you away from God. One of the best like literary illustrations of the fear of God when C.S. Lewis captivated in Chronicles of Narnia. I know you've heard this, but I just want to say it. So Aslan the lion, when Lucy first hears about Aslan, she gets that, that feeling in her bones. Like, I don't, there's something about that name. And then she asks, um, she finds out that it's a lion from the beavers. And she says, well, is he a tame lion? And of course the beavers are like, um, no, he's a lion. He is not tame. And that next line, but he's good. Amen. That's what the fear of God is like. Is God tame? Like, is he nice? Is he just gonna be up there like an old granddad and just say, hey, everything's great? No. He is not an old granddad that's just like, hey, whatever you guys wanna do. No, he is a ferocious, all-consuming fire. He is a holy God. but he's, he's not tame, but he's good. He is good and he is good to us and he loves us. So fear should cause us not in fright to run away from God. It should lead us to worship, to come into his presence and be awestruck by who he is and just bask in his glory. And in light of that, we do the only reasonable thing, which is to obey him. See, this fear God and obey his commandments, it's not two different things, it's one and the same. It's like a coin with two sides. You have a tail side and a head side. There's tails, fear God, heads, obey. Both those things go together. You can't do one without the other. See, religious people who don't have a relationship with God, this is like scribes and Pharisees and perhaps some of us even here, see, our obedience, when we think about obeying God's commandments, obeying God's word, the reason we obey, because we are afraid if we don't, he will see us. So we obey, we go to church, we read our Bibles to try to get God not to pay attention to us. Like, I just wanna live my life and do my thing and I wanna keep God at bay. So I'm gonna obey, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna read my Bible, see God checklist. Now just go about your business and I'll go about mine. So the reason we obey is because we're afraid if we don't, God will see us. Now, proper fear, not religious fear, but relationship fear, gospel fear, it obeys for a different reason. You don't obey because you're afraid God will see you. You obey because you have seen God. And that's a whole different way to obey. 
There's a difference there. It's not, I'm gonna obey because I don't want God to see me. It's I've seen God, and because I've seen God, the only response is fear and marvel. The only response is worship, and now I'm gonna do whatever you say because I love you so much, and I just wanna walk in your commandments because I know you're good to me. I've seen it. I've seen the gospel. I've seen you. I know who you are. I've seen the cross. I've marveled in it, and now I just want to live my life under your word. See, fear God and obey his commandments, it means to worship God and live under his word. And see, when you worship God, it will root out in your life. When you worship God, it'll change how you behave. When you worship God, it'll come to your hands and your feet because in worshiping God, seeing who he is and what he's done, it will cause you to move to want to obey him. So our whole duty, our whole life, everything you are is about worshiping and responding to God. That's the whole book. What, what he wants you to see is worship and respond property, properly to God. That is the whole thing. That's what you were made for. That's what you were meant for. And if you don't have the proper worship and response to God, you are living a meaningless life. That's a hard message. It's a prodding message, but it one to get you to repent because there is a reason why everything matters. And the reason everything matters is because of the last verse. Here's the reason. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. See, this is why everything matters. See, if you take God out of the equation, nothing matters because we all just die and we, and we, and we turn into worms and like nothing happens. It's just, you just die and everything is forgotten. But because there is a God, there is a creator, we will stand in judgment before him. That means every single thing matters. Everything you do matters right now for eternity and you're gonna stand before him in judgment. Everything matters if you bring God into the equation. And here's what we find, that we are gonna stand before God in judgment. All of us will. And here's what I just want to remind you of, that you're gonna stand in judgment one of two ways. The first way, without Christ. If you don't have Christ, you're gonna stand before a holy God in your own two feet. You're gonna stand on your own two feet. You're gonna stand before a holy, all-consuming God and you're gonna even account for your life, not just the public things, but the secret things, the good things and the bad things. And you're gonna have to plead your case before a holy and perfect God on judgment day. The God who knows the secrets of your heart and says the wages of sin is death. So if one sin, you're in death. That's the first way to stand before the judgment of God. But praise be to Jesus, there is a second way to stand before the judgment of God. And it's not in your own two feet, it's in the shoes of another. It's in the shoes of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's to stand in him, clothed in him, so that when you are looking at your heavenly father, your heavenly father's looking back at you and he's seeing Jesus his righteousness, his life, his perfection, his holiness. 
That's why Christ came. He came to live the life that you couldn't, a perfect, righteous, holy life. He actually earned righteousness. He is righteous. And on the cross, he died the death you deserve so that he could take your sins and forgive them and do away with them. So at the cross, he erases your sin and he gives you his very righteousness as a gift. That's what happens by faith. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, sins forgiven, righteousness imputed to you so that when you stand in judgment, you're not standing in your own works, you're standing in the works of Christ. You're standing in his righteousness, what he did, how he lived. You are standing in Christ. And so just pull out all the secrets of Christ. I promise you, they're holy and good. So here's why everything matters, because the end is not just the end. The end is only the beginning. And at the end, you're either going to stand on your own two feet, or you're going to stand in the shoes of another. And some of you this morning are still standing on your own two feet. You're trying, you're working, you're trying to earn God's love, you're trying to do more good than bad, and it's not gonna work. Because if you stand on your own two feet, you will fall in judgment. But there is a good news message, there is a gospel message that Christ came to trade places with you so that you could trade places with him and so you could stand in his shoes at judgment and God could say to you, I am well pleased, my beloved son. Come into the kingdom. So as we end, what, what's the whole thing about? Well, the whole thing, yeah, worship God and live under his word. That's fear and obey. And we do that not because we're afraid of God. We do that in awe and worship of God because we love Jesus and we've been found in him. And I just want to ask as we are at the end, I want to ask about the end. Because some of you right now are still in your own feet and you need to put on the shoes of Jesus. You need to trade places. You need to be found in him this morning before you meet your maker. So I've asked a few people to stand just in front of you. We've got a few counselors who are going to stand up. And if you just bow your heads and close your eyes, I'm just going to have a response time because some of you need to respond to Christ right now. So if that's you, I text some of you this week. If that's you, please stand up in front. There are men and women here who would love to talk to you about Christ. Don't face judgment without Jesus. Don't face life without Jesus because he is life. So what I'm gonna do in this moment is I'm just gonna pray and this is your time to move. As I pray, if you know you need Christ, just get out of your seat, come here, come to one of these counselors and they would love to talk to you about Christ. Father, I pray right now as we just open the invitation to you, I pray that you would draw people. I pray that you would call people I pray there's people that have been walking through Ecclesiastes and realize their lives are broken and meaningless and they've been living for things that can't satisfy, but you, oh Christ, can satisfy our hearts. So God, I pray that if anyone is not in Christ, if anyone is not living in worship and response to you, I pray that today they would see and marvel. Today they would be awestruck, that they would repent and believe in the gospel.
God, I also pray for those of us who know you. I pray that we would be reminded of what life is really all about. It's about worshiping and responding to you, living in that proper relationship with you and then living our lives ordered under you for our good and for your glory, knowing that yes, everything under the sun doesn't matter, but in the sun, everything does. So let us as believers live this week in worship and obedience to you because we know that in you, everything matters. We pray this in the good name of Christ. Amen. You're listening to audio from Hardin Baptist Church. For more audio content or other information about our church, please visit hardinbaptist.org.